0: I don't know if many of you have heard the name before, but uh, Nick Vucic hopefully I'm pronouncing that relatively close to what it is, was born in 1982. His parents were refugees from what was then known as Yugoslavia. They had fled communism and wound up in Australia. And in 1982, they found out that they were going to have a child. And of course, there was great excitement. Then, when he was born on December 4th, that excitement turned to worry as they looked at the faces of the doctor and the nurse in the birthing room and could tell there was something wrong. Unbeknownst to them, because all the tests showed the baby was healthy and strong, Nick had a condition, a very rare condition, called Tetra-Amelia Syndrome. Now, most of us have probably never heard of that before. But let me show you, if the clicker works, what that means. That's a picture of Nick now. As you can see, he has no arms and no legs. So as you can imagine, growing up for Nick, it was quite a challenge. The cruelty of kids, the bullying he's faced, the depression and the anxiety he went under for a long period of time. But then he came to Christ. And when he came to Christ, he realized that all the things he had gone through were not without purpose. He realized that there was something greater that Christ was doing in him than the circumstances he faced. He realized what it was like to become an overcomer. And that's part of the passage we're going to talk about. If you've been with us, you know that we've been in the New Testament book of 1 John. And now we're in the fifth chapter, the final chapter We're going to go through the first half of that together this morning. So would you pray with me real quick as we do that and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for sustaining it for thousands of years so that we could have it, so that we could know you. God, thank you for working in the Apostle John and his heart to write this letter to a church that was facing uncertain times and difficulty. And that he wrote to encourage and strengthen them in the faith he knew they had. Would you encourage and strengthen us in our faith? And for those, Father, who maybe are here today and don't yet know you, God, would you open their eyes, their hearts, their minds to see and savor Jesus, I pray, in his name. If you've been with us for the last few weeks as we've been going through John, you've noticed that there have been some hard times that John is dealing with. What had happened was a group had split off from the church and had left, no longer professing the name of Jesus. And as you can imagine, and some of you have lived through this yourself, uh, have had somebody walk out on you, and you know the pain and the difficulty, that the fact that they've left doesn't mean that they're still not having an impact in your life. And that's what the church that John is writing to is experiencing. There's confusion. Why did they leave? What's going on? Wait a minute, did we miss something? And John, understanding now as an older man what was happening, writes this letter out of love and care and concern for this church to say, no, 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 don't turn aside. I know what you're going through is difficult, but your faith is not in vain. And so if you read the letter, you'll see that six different passages, John says, I am writing to you or I write to you. And then he follows up and he either encourages them or he deals directly with the false teaching that was so prevalent at this church and specifically from the people who left it. And as he does so, John is going to give us several birthmarks for those who follow Christ. He says they keep God's commandments. They walk with, as Christ walked. They love each other. They don't love the world system. They believe and they confess Jesus. They practice righteousness. They turn from sin. They have the spirit of God. And this one's key. They accept the apostolic word. What John had proclaimed to them, they continue to walk in. And then here, what we come to today, they overcome the world and they have eternal life. So as we've been going through, you've noticed over and over, you've heard these themes emerging of life, of light, and of love. And as Pastor Dave pointed out to us last week, it seems like John never really gets away from a subject. He just comes back from it and to it. You may remember a few years ago, there was a movie that came out called Vantage Point. It was a political thriller that involved uh, an attempted assassination on a president in Spain. And each segment of the movie replayed the same events, but from a different, slightly different perspective. So that you got a full picture of what was going on and who had actually perpetrated this assassination attempt. John's doing the same thing. He's coming from different angles on the same issues to help us see them more clearly and to help his readers, his original readers, see them more clearly. And he's going to do it again today. So in these first 12 verses that we're going to look at, and really, it's really just going to be the first five, and then we'll touch on 6 through 12 somewhat, because they are important and I don't want to overlook them. But John is at the penultimate point of his letter. He's about to wrap it up, and you're going to see next week that some of the things he says seem a little bit strange unless you've been following along in the letter itself. But as Pastor Dave pointed out, the letter sounds somewhat familiar if you know the Gospel of John, the the Gospel account that he wrote from the time he spent on earth with Jesus. And Pastor Dave pointed out last week the familiarity between John 3.16, the most well-known Bible verse, and 1 John 3.16. Well, I want to point another one out without going too far into it, because it really sets up for next week more than today's message, but it's crucial. And it comes from 1 John 5.13, and I want you to see the similarity between 1 John 5, 13 and between John's Gospel account in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and here's how it says. So John's Gospel account, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have eternal life. John wrote his original Gospel, So that people could have certainty as who Jesus is, and that they would believe in him, place their trust, their hope, their faith, their love in him. Well, now John's writing again, and look at the similarity of what he says, but look at the difference, too. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So he, he begins originally writing his gospel account so people will know that there is eternal life in Jesus and embrace him. And now he's writing to this church, battered and torn, to remind them of what they believed. And so everything that precedes it that we're going to talk about today sets that verse and the rest of the second half of chapter 5 up. So I want us to pay attention to three things this morning. Let's notice the foundation of faith, the fruit of faith, and the focus of faith. The foundation of faith, the fruit of faith, the focus of faith. Now, here's the first five verses, and this is where we're really going to spend most of the time. Now, some of you I know, because I've been in it with you in the past, have done something called inductive Bible study. Who's done that? Right? It's something where you have your, your colored pencils and you're marking, you know, every time you see God, you put a triangle over his name. Or every time you see faith, you circle it. And you, and, and you try to get at a d- the deeper understanding of what the text is going to say. So we're going to try this out this morning corporately. And this could be a spectacular thing, and I hope it will be, or it could be a big bust. And I'm willing to take the risk. Now I'm going to warn you, this next slide is going to show you my attempt at doing a, a, an inductive Bible study in these first five verses. If you are someone who does not do well with visual clutter, I am warning you now to look away, hold your Bible up, close your eyes, turn to your husband or wife, and look at them, because it's, it's spectacular. It mean, really is just, it's going to be amazing. And I don't want to hold it up anymore, so here we go. Look at that! It looks like a kindergartner did this, doesn't it? No, it really. But look. In all seriousness, these first five verses have so much in them. He brings out so many things in such a short period of time. It really is truly amazing. So I want you to notice some of the keys here, okay? I want you to look where he talks about belief and faith. Those are circled in blue. Love, little red hearts, isn't that nice? Been born of because that's going to be key. Commandments. Overcome the world. And some of them, I'm sorry, they shifted on the slide, so I apologize. It's not exactly over what they should be, but you'll get the point. But what I really want you to pay attention to when we get to it is the two sentences, it's verse 3 and 4, that start with 4, And then they say, and. Because those are going to be critical to understanding John's point here. So let's get started. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Stop there. Point number one. We said, let's look at the foundation of faith. Why do we believe It's because we've been born of God. God initiates an action on our behalf first. He steps into our life because there's no way we're going to step into his on our own. So he comes and he engages us. What does it mean to be born? Well, it means that you weren't alive before, but for us, it's actually worse than that. Not only weren't we alive before, but the Bible is clear. We were dead. Right, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So not only weren't we alive, we were in fact dead, and it took God coming to deal with that. And what's the very first thing that produces? It produces belief. It produces faith. In Jesus Christ. God opens our hearts. He opens our minds to see Him. And the very first thing is that we believe Jesus. We're not just saying we believe facts about Jesus, though, and that's key. John's not saying, here's a list of ten things you need to know about Jesus. Get them right. There's going to be a quiz later. No, what he's saying when he says believe is to to be in love with, to adore, to be overwhelmed at seeing Jesus for who he is. The new birth serves as a foundation for that. So believing, i.e. joyfully treasuring, that's how I wrote it down for myself, because I thought that really grasped it well, joyfully treasuring Jesus as the Messiah, as the rescuer, as the king, that is what the new birth produces. And then from there, look at the second half of that verse. And you know what? You've seen this now enough. Let's go back to this one. <laughs> you can probably follow along better. Right? It says, and everyone who loves the Father. So now here John has taken belief in Jesus, and he's sort of, he's gone to that next vantage point. He says, everyone who loves the Father, i.e., everyone who's believed, has uh, loves whoever has been born of him. And now he's going to start to transition into the next point, which is what the fruit of faith is. The foundation of faith is the new birth, but the fruit of faith is love. It's love for God, and it's love for others. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 2. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when... We love God and obey His commandments. Pastor Dave pointed this out to us last week, didn't he? That the two are inseparable. Loving God and loving others cannot be broken apart. You can't say, I'm good with God, but I don't have time for people. That doesn't mesh. If you love God, you love others. And it says... And we obey his commands. We're going to get to that point in a moment. You see, Jesus brought this very same point out, right? He ties together in Matthew 22, 33 through 40, two tenets of the Old Testament law. One from Deuteronomy 6, 5, where it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then from a Leviticus nineteen eighteen, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus puts them together, and he says, everything, everything in the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets hang on those two points, those two verses. How does loving one another connect with keeping God's commands, though? Paul points it out to us in Romans chapter 13. Here's how it reads. It's verses 8 through 10. If you want to scribble that down somewhere and look at it yourself at some point, it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment. Let me say that again. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If we love God, we love others. And if we love God... We follow his commandments. What commandments is John talking about? That's where the context is important, right? Chapters 3 and 4, John has been going through systematically from different vantage points, loving the children of God, loving brothers and sisters in Christ, loving others, loving your neighbor, right? He says in this commandment, he boils it down again to one. We have from him, referring to Jesus, whoever loves God must love his brother. You see, God's commands are the measure for how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're the measure for how we love others. See, it's not, I think he's trying to differentiate, it's not just a mere feeling of affection, as important and good as that is. It's loving people By following what God has to say about love. It's not loving them how we want to love them. It's not loving them by how we think they should want to be loved. It's following God's decisive, direct commands in doing so. Well, what are those commands? Well, John kind of lays it out. He says, this is important, 1 John 3.18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth." There he goes again, he's saying, look, don't don't let it be the mere measure of loving words as good or important as those are, but back them up with your action. If you study the New Testament in particular, you'll notice, depending how you want to categorize the verses, there is anywhere between three and five dozen Commands that we would call the one another commands of Scripture. Things like Galatians 5.13, serve one another through love. Or Ephesians 4.32, be kind to each other, tender hearted and forgiving each other, as in Christ God has forgiven you. The one another commands are what are in view here. And so John uses verse 2 to begin this transition and flushes this out more, and here's really the heart of it in verses three and four, and let's take a look at this. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. There he restates it, a little bit different way of saying, a little different vantage point, we keep his commandments. And, first one, his commandments are not burdensome. When we see the word for, right, we know from our English class in elementary school You go back to what was just said. So John is summing up from verses 1 and 2, and now he says, For this is the love of God. Remember, his love is tied to keeping his commands. His commands are tied to loving others. It's more than just words. Right? But then he says this. He says, And his commandments are not burdensome. John is not promoting some form of legalism where he's going to give them a list of commands and say, get your act together, let's go, you gotta do these. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, no, these commands are not burdensome. Now, a light bulb probably went off to his hearers, right? Because they're primarily Jewish. They would have known a lot about the Old Testament and they certainly would have probably been familiar with the teaching of the religious leaders of that day on Judaism. And here's what Jesus said about those religious leaders in Matthew 23:4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, the religious leaders, they were all about God's commandments. But those commandments became a heavy weight that they put on others. They didn't do it themselves. They put it on others. And they didn't help those that they put them on. They let them be crushed by the commands. So those commands weren't ones that revealed to people how awesome God was. They became something that was crushing them. And Jesus calls them out. He's not too shy about it. Here John's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what this is like. This isn't lifting burdens onto your shoulder and asking you them to carry them. No. These commands are not burdensome. Why? We're going to get to that in just a moment in this next verse. See, when we're liberated from burdensome way of obedience, we become free to love others and lay ourselves aside for them. So it's it's tying into John's whole point that the, the focus of the commands is loving others. This isn't just a benefit for us, though. It's a benefit for those we're loving. This allows those we serve to experience God's love through us and our loving service to them in a way that lifts their burdens rather than puts more on their shoulders. And let me give you an example. So several years ago, I was driving with a friend, and he opened up about something he had done that he was deeply ashamed of. And I was a relatively new Christian. It was probably maybe two years or so after I had come to Christ and i couldn't be- what he was telling me was scandalous and i couldn't believe what i was hearing and my response was not to lift the burden by taking him back to the gospel it was telling him what he did was wrong and he needed to make it right i was placing the burden back on him i was not coming to his side and saying you know what in jesus that burden is lifted by your faith, because he was a believer, by your faith in him, your trust in him, your love for him, you've experienced a freedom that is yours now, and you don't have to carry that any longer. Why? Look at the next part here in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, he goes back up to the top, in verse 1, he says, for everyone who has been born of God, what? Over the world. They experience what Nick, who I talked about at the beginning, experienced. They overcome the world. Now what does it mean to overcome? He's clearly stating there are forces in this world, in this world system, that make it easy for us not to love God and not to love others. What needs to be overcome is anything that prevents us from loving God and anything that sees his commands as burdensome. So think about it. Jesus in Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower, right? And what does he say? You know, the sower scatters seeds and you know, some some bring up a harvest, others do not. Some seem like they're working but they don't last. And why does he say it doesn't last? He's like, because some people are choked up by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Others face hardship and they just willed away, right? Because why? Because they saw God at that point as something that was burdensome, following him was a burden, right? And John's saying, no, 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 no. John, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of possessions, Right, There's a world system that we don't see with our physical eyes necessarily, but that has an impact on us. That draws us, constantly tries to draw us away from who God is. And John says, when the new birth happens and your eyes are open to see Jesus, that's the time when this world system is overcome. Because now you see how much better Jesus is than the very best thing that this world can offer. And so he's going to continue here in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he adds another layer. He's looking from another vantage point here. He's going to open up the rest of verses 6 through 12 here for us. You see, it's not just faith that overcomes. It's faith in a specific person, Jesus Christ Christ. It's faith in him and seeing him as more valuable than anything this world offers that makes us overcomers. So let's see how that verse then transitions us to the last part here in verses 6 through 12. So we looked at the foundation of faith being the new birth and the faith that it establishes in our life. We saw that the fruit of faith is love, love for God, love for others. Now let's just focus on the focus of faith. The person, Jesus Christ. And look what John says here. This is the one who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this testimony of God, uh, for this is the testimony of God that he has concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. John's going to go back to something he said earlier in the letter. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. So He brings up kind of this, it seems strange for us, the water, the blood, what's he talking about here? Right? And there's various perspectives on this, but I think the one that's most clear and direct is he's talking about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry when he's baptized by John, and he's talking about the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? And he's saying, so these testify, they point to, They make clear who this Jesus is. Now think for a moment at those two events. When he comes to be baptized, what does John say? He says, the lamb of the world takes away our sins, right? And the spirit descends, and you hear the voice of God say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. There's a testimony, a testifying of who Jesus is at that moment. And then fast forward to the cross, as he gives up his last breath, saying, the debt is paid, he dies. And what does the soldier who's keeping watch say? Truly, this is the Son of God. Yet again, another testimony. But John says, look, there's even one more. There's God's Spirit himself. The spirit who John in his gospel says leads us in the truth. The spirit who Paul says testifies to our spirit that we are his kids. He also testifies about who Jesus is. The new birth produces faith and faith produces love for God and for others. And this love leads us to be sacrificial because we now see God's commands are not burdensome because we have overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that is strengthened by the testimony that it is true who the Bible declares he is. So now these last couple verses. Verse 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life, right? John's going to make it abundantly clear. There are two choices. There's not a middle ground. There's not, hey, I'll take some of this, but not all of it. There's life in Jesus Christ as testified through the scriptures and the events that they relay to us. Or you call God a liar and you don't experience life. You continue to live in death. That's what John, it's kind of like, wow. Right? But he wants to make it perfectly clear to these believers that the faith they have was not in vain. So let's. So let me ask you a couple questions. Do you see Jesus as supremely valuable, and do you love Him? Has Christ's love for you led you to love others in action, or do you find loving others burdensome? Do you do things? Do you love things of this world? Do they have a hold on you? Now, I added this fourth one in because I think if your life is like mine at times, I would answer yes and no to the first three, right? Do you see Jesus as supremely valuable and do you love him? Yes, but there are times when that love wanes on my end. Has Christ's love for you led you to love others in action or do you find loving others burdensome? Yes, it has, but there's times I felt it's burdensome. Do you love the things of this world, and do they hold you up? Yes, at times they have. Right? So that last question is really meant to point us back to Jesus. Where do you turn when you find yourself loving the things of this world and not loving others? Well, listen to John's words in 1 John 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Does knowing that truth, that we have an advocate, when you mess up and when I mess up on those first three, does that take us back to Jesus with grateful hearts, thanking him that he's the advocate that never stops advocating and pleading on my behalf and on your behalf? So let me do one last slide with you, okay? Let's look at the themes again of light, of love, and life, but just from this passage. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. God's light has come in, right? And it's opened our eyes to see it. And everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commands, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. There's the love portion, right? And then at the very end, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Why are these statements true? Because Jesus is the light. That's what John says in John 8, 12 and 9, 5. Jesus has entered the darkness of this world, right? We sing that song. Light of the world, you step down in the darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. He has brought his light by stepping into our darkness. Jesus is love. He just, he's not just loving. He is love. God is love. While we were still enemies, while we were still his adversaries, he died for us, freeing us so that we could love God and love others. And in doing so, he bore our burdens on the cross that we might be free from the burdens that this world creates. And he surrendered himself to the will of the Father, which meant death on that cross, that we might be overcomers. Lastly, Jesus is life. John 6:35, 11:25, 14,6. He laid down his earthly life so that we might experience eternal life. He tasted death so that we could be made alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit taking your word and working it in our hearts to draw us closer to you, to remind us, God, of our need for you and your love for us. Thank you for being the one who brings the light into our darkness. Thank you for loving us when we hated you. Thank you for offering us life when we were dead. And thank you that you did it all willingly, Jesus. That your love compelled you to act on our behalf. In light of these truths, God, that you've declared in your word, help us to see that following your commands are not burdensome. Help us to see that you have given us what we need to overcome this world. And in doing so, God, help us to love each other well, and to love others who aren't yet part of your family well. That they might see what you are like and that they too may believe. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.